Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast. We're your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. And today we're starting our new election arc and the working title of this episode should give that away, which is why are we talking about income inequality when the economy is strong? We will answer that question. And I think it's really (laughs) important to listen to this because this episode and the one that will follow has gotten us really fired up. Yes. So to start off, I think we've heard a lot about the economy recently. I know that my email inbox is like overflowing with stuff about the economy. So do you delete like the Wall Street Journal slash CNN slash New York Times slash insert your favorite email alert here when they lead with economic numbers or something about economy in the title? I'm not a numbers person. Yes, I did like do really well in math growing up. But like, no, I spent enough time on Wall Street that to be honest, it's like I have an allergic reaction to numbers now when they come out. Yeah. So I worked in finance, too. And I tend to like I can feel my eyes glazing over when I see a bunch of numbers related to economic performance. So, you know, I think that this happens to both of us. But regardless of how you handle your email alerts, we're here to tell you about one big issue related to all of these financial numbers and going past those actual numbers and why it's so important for you to know where your candidates stand on this when you head in to vote. And that's income inequality. So what comes to mind when you think about that? But, you know, before we get into that large question, maybe the first question is, have you ever thought about income inequality? Heck yeah. I mean, I don't know if you're actually asking me if I've ever thought about income inequality, but the answer is like... Yep, you're the guinea pig. Here we go. I have. I mean, in so many different things, right? Most immediately, the thought that came to mind was public schools. Like we were thinking when we moved to Colorado, do we send our kids to public school or private school? And the only reason private school was even on the agenda was because the funding for education in this state is not very high. And so I'm like, well, you know, everyone has this whole what's best for my kid, my kid. But the reality is we live so close to so many good public schools. And it was really important for me that our kids had exposure to kids who did not just look like them or had the same amount of money as them. So for me and our family, we made the choice about the public school system. But I really think about some of the kids who don't get holiday gifts, who don't have food, like in our kids' school. And so that came up for me. I mean, going back ages ago, showing up as undergrads at Harvard, yeah, that came up because my dad, I think, you know, had a couple of financially challenging years leading into me showing up as a freshman at Harvard. And here are a bunch of kids with Burberry trench coats from their private schools. And I'm like, holy crap, like we really, I felt like, I mean, the jobs that I worked, I had to hoard that money so that I could buy my textbooks with them. And and yet they were like, let's go to the bar, let's go to, well, maybe not the bar because it was underage and illegal at that time. Okay. I know, Sarah, what were you doing in undergrad? <laughs> I didn't mean that. <laughs> but, you know, that really hit me hard too, where I felt inadequate for years and like I had to save so much money. And then graduating and going to Goldman, all of a sudden I'm making all this money and paying back my student loans and leaving that to go work in a coffee shop in Brooklyn after quite a number of years because I had to just get out of that world. Like, again, it's, I realized that whenever I have been in certain pockets, I've been exposed to different viewpoints and also been challenged because, you know, I mentioned before we went to college, I mean, I used to think that we had hardship when I was, when my dad sort of lost his job for a couple of years there and didn't make income, you know, but we still had a roof over our heads in a really nice neighborhood. We had all sorts of food. My parents made all the sacrifices and like bought no new clothes for themselves. Like 
I thought that was hard because there was a risk that we could lose that roof over our heads, but we had that. And so then when I show up, you know, going back around to the Brooklyn days and I was like, yeah, we had a hard time too. And they're like, are you freaking kidding me? You have no idea what hardship is. And I remember having to feel a little humbled and sort of like, I'm a dumbass. Like, you're right. I don't know what it's really like to really struggle to have money and to not feel safe that at least I had somewhere to go home to or some way to keep warm or I knew where my meal was coming from. So I guess all that is to say, I definitely have thought about it. Yeah, I think college for me was really eye-opening in that way because, you know, I grew up as the daughter of an immigrant. So we had a different heat. My dad was very conscious about money, but, you know, it was not a struggle for us growing up, right? So when I went to college and saw just the wide wide range of what income and wealth look like. And, you know, even among my friends, I would say, because there was such a range in, you know, people who were basically going on the most amazing vacations you could think of versus people who like, you know, my grandfather who lived in every tiny top floor room at the college because he needed all the work study money to go towards his books. And I was volunteering at that time at Ringe and Latin School, teaching flute to kids in the after school program. I did not know you did this. Oh, yeah. Weren't we like really close in college? I did not know you did that. (laughs) Yes, Sarah. Well, you were at the bar. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Because we were probably there together. But anyway, no, I would walk there and I saw a completely different side of high school, right? Because these were high school kids. And these were kids who, if I wasn't teaching them flute, there might not have been anyone in there who was going to talk to them after school, who was going to give them anything to do after school besides go home or not go home. Because, you know, they were living in a completely different world than I was. One where no day was going to be taken for granted in the way that I woke up in high school, knowing that I had food, I had, you know, after school activities, like I, my parents were going to pick me up in their cars and drive me places because we, you know, I went to a private school, we didn't have buses. So it was, their days were much more unpredictable. And I can't even could not imagine and still cannot imagine what that makes you feel like. So that was really, really eye opening for me. And then going to finance, living abroad, coming back, seeing the disparity in the clients that I've worked with, paying clients versus pro bono clients and their needs and their concerns has also continued to reinforce just how big income inequality is in this country. Yeah. Well, and the other thing that I viscerally feel I need to express is, you know, okay, there's definitely a need for humans to feel safe and to have the roof over their head that know where their meal is coming from. Like that is something that is obviously very, very critical. And I think the hard part in this country, because we have leaned so into capitalism, is that once you have those basic needs, maybe even with extra clothes to wear and, you know, money for your future that you're able to put aside, it's like a mind trip about in order to be seen as valuable, I need to bust my tushy to work hard to make more money because here it's like more, 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 more. And if you're not making more money, it's this sense that you're not valuable. And I think that there's some psyche in our undercurrent of this country that unless you face that and choose not to listen to that undercurrent or the way that we are sort of wired in this country, I feel like 
it's kind of the judgment that so many people make, which leads to why I hate when people are like, what do you do when you meet them? Because I'm like, do you really care what job I do? Do you want to know how I spend my time? Or are you just trying to judge me based on how much money I make? And so that has been interesting to really mull over as I have been thinking about, you know, when I thought about leaving and staying home to raise the kids. Well, what's the value? You really have to question it because it seems really frowned upon to not make money in this country once you get past a certain level of income. Yeah. Sorry, that was maybe a little more off topic than we were expecting, but... No, I mean, I think it clearly shows that we have both thought about income inequality in a whole variety of ways. But, you know, there might be a whole bunch of you out there, especially if you're in that 1%, you know, maybe you haven't thought about income inequality, but it definitely is a big issue heading into this election season. A new survey released in January by the Pew Research Center found that economic inequality is a big issue with voters and not just liberals, where I think we get a lot of press now about what what are the Democratic candidates doing? What are Democrats thinking about, you know, income inequality and economic inequality? But this survey highlights that it's not just the liberals. Americans across the board today see income inequality as a bigger problem than illegal immigration, which is the issue that Donald Trump rode to the White House in 2016. Some 61% of adult Americans told Pew that there is, quote, too much income inequality in the U.S., and 42% said reducing income inequality should be a major priority for the federal government, three percentage points more than those who said the same thing about reducing illegal immigration, which I thought was fascinating. That figure rose to 78% when only accounting for those who lean politically to the left. And one thing to say about this is so many people see that income inequality is an issue. And yet, I mean, you have to, have you seen this video? It's an income inequality video that is on YouTube and it's called Wealth Inequality in America. It's like, if you aren't following us on Instagram, I don't even know how to get a link on Instagram right now, but email list, like what it showed was that even the people who estimate, like guesstimate what like numbers they assume represent the income distribution in our country, even they are wrong. It is even more skewed than people who think it is an issue. Like it is a very, very big problem. And so I sat my Canadian husband down on the sofa and I was like, you need to watch this because even he didn't believe that it was that bad coming from the land of Canada where there's a lot more middle class, a lot more safety nets in place. So 100% Google this or reach out to us. I mean, this video, it's six minutes. It blew my mind. Yes. And I love videos because I think that sometimes we can see things in a very compressed way that's put out there and understand it in a completely different fashion than we have been able to before with just words. So going back to this issue in an election year, David Paliogos, I totally butchered your name, David, I'm so sorry, director of the Suffolk University Political Research Center, says the economy can be a complex issue in an election. On the one hand, the rising stock market is good for Trump. On the other hand, income inequality and wealth inequality is most pronounced when the stock market is doing well, he says. And that's interesting, right? The rising stock market, the stock market's doing well right now. So that could be a good thing, but it means inequality is rising because I think what they say is if you are still struggling to put food on the table, you're not investing in stocks. So you're not participating in the upside that is happening in the market right now. And so the gap widens. Yeah. And I think that that's an important thing to keep in mind when, you know, you have Trump tweeting about how the economy is at the strongest point it's ever been, which is actually, I believe that's been fact checked to be inaccurate. But remember, strong economy, rising stock market means higher levels of income inequality. 
So this study, the Pew Research Study, follows a separate study released also in January of this year by Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health, which shows why economic populism is so politically popular at the moment. So this report, which is called Life Experiences and Income Inequality in the United States, which is also, besides being from Harvard, is also sponsored by NPR, is based on a survey of close to 2,000 adults in July and August of last year. It found that households in the top 1% of the income distribution, which is essentially those households earning more than $500,000, are essentially leading completely different lives to the other 99%. Most of the top 1% highest income adults say they are very satisfied with their lives overall, their finances, their housing, their education, and their jobs, the study reports. Comparatively, middle and lower income adults report greater dissatisfaction than the top 1% in all of these areas, it added. Adults in the top 1% also report lower levels of anxiety about the future than middle and lower income adults. Few in the top 1% say they experience any major financial worries, and few ever have problems with medical or dental bills or prescription drug costs, the report said. Just 8% of those earning more than $500,000 a year had experienced serious problems with those types of bills. However, the figure among the middle class, meaning those earning $35,000 to $99,000 a year, was 48%. So almost half of the people who are in our economic middle class have reported having issues with medical bills, with dental bills, with prescription drug costs. I mean, we talk about different narratives, and this is a huge one where we can experience the very different realities living, you know, in from one city to the next, within one sort of neighborhood division to the next, and possibly even within same school districts in a lot of cases. And so you either have financial worries or you don't. And in a lot of stuff just about basic physical health care. Yeah. Alone, right? It's very basic, right? It is like our basic human needs being met. Are they being met or not? And for the top 1%, they are. Some 90% of those in the top 1% were very or completely satisfied with their lives. Among the middle class, that figure was 66%. And fewer than two in five middle-class Americans were very or completely satisfied with their financial situation. There are, however, data points in the survey that complicate this political picture because conservatives and moderates will note that the attitudes of Americans appear to vary much less than their economic situations. The poor and the middle class were about as likely as the very rich to say that hard work was a key component to success in modern America. That's really interesting. So everyone believes in the value of hard work. I mean, that's a broad brush statement, but... So everyone thinks we have to work hard. That's great. Right. And sort of, you know, pushes forward the that American our fundamental tenets of American being an American, I guess. Meanwhile, though, the rich were almost as likely as everyone else to accept that growing up in an affluent neighborhood, having wealthy parents and having well-educated parents all played a big role as well, the study added. I mean, that's interesting. So they acknowledge that there is advantage that's passed on as legacy from our history and our family that comes before us and how we were like lucky to have been born into certain situations, basically, in terms of their financial success and satisfaction. But here's what I thought was interesting. Some 56% of the poor or 82% of the middle class thought that they had either achieved the American dream or were on their way to achieving it. And I feel like That's really interesting because I feel like that perception of the American dream is so different. I would say the one percenters probably have very different definitions of what the American dream is. And I don't think they'd say the middle class has achieved it. Would they be happy with making $99,000 a year and being, 
you know, 48% of them dissatisfied or unable to make their medical bills kind of thing. So is that up to our own definition of success in terms of achieving this concept of the American dream? Yeah, I think that's a great question because that the fact that we are apparently, regardless of income, aligned on that, you know, idea that we work hard to get what we want and then that we've achieved this American dream means that it must be a subjective concept, right, of the American dream in so many ways. And yet I would say that if you struggle to put a roof over your head and food in your mouth and clothes to stay warm in and a decent education and aren't worried about if I get hit by a bus trying to save the kid, I'm going to go bankrupt and lose it all. Like, to me, I feel like this is my personal stuff. Sorry, this is not factual or historical. But I really, <laughs> really, really feel like we need to do more to help support that possibility of the American dream. If we're all in it to work hard, there are going to be situations or pockets of places in the country where there are no jobs, where people don't have the option and they don't have the money to get out of there to continue working hard because they don't have money. And I don't know, there's just something there that makes me frustrated with quite with the level of and the increasing widening of income distribution in this country. But agreed. And so when we talk about the 1%, some of you who listen to this podcast may be in that 1%. So when we're talking about income inequality, you know, in this space, let's talk about how this looks when you're not in that 1%. So this also might sound like someone you know, or someone you're related to, or even yourself. So, you know, we've in looking at and preparing for this podcast and this episode about income inequality, we ran across a whole bunch of different narratives about people who struggle. And one of these, which we pulled out, is that of Jimmy Wilson, who's a 49-year-old cook who works at a Detroit bar. And when he was interviewed by, I believe, The Atlantic for the piece that they did, he is sitting outside on his break from his bar and he's upset. He says... This doesn't affect me at all. Speaking about the Democratic debate streaming on the bar's TV, I still have to go to work in the morning. I still have to pay taxes. So the backstory to Jimmy Wilson here, which may sound familiar to what you've read, what you've seen, or maybe your own experiences, is that he comes from a neighborhood that is being sort of gentrified. You've got businesses coming in, you've got new shops, new townhomes, but at the same time, that equates to rising prices and an influx of people, which might push him out of what has historically been a working class community and a community that he could afford. And he's super angry that he works six days a week and doesn't have more to show for it. So when he's also interviewed and asked, you know, again, why he's so angry, he says, I should have had the same opportunity that a kid that grew up in Bloomfield Hills has, says, which refers to an affluent Detroit suburb. So he's coming from that area that's being gentrified, that where, you know, he's been, he is a working class individual, he comes from that background, and yet is seeing himself priced out of a neighborhood because of changes in money movement, which has not included him. That's really interesting. That is a good one. But so Jimmy Wilson aside, most political observers agree that it will take far more than a presidential election to reverse a trend that has been in the works since the 1970s. Right, because that's when the gap really started widening in this country. So it's been going on for decades and it's just accelerating more in recent times. Yes. And we've talked about some of these different ways in which we've seen it accelerating. We've seen, you know, gentrification and we've seen changes in neighborhood and we've seen flight of the upper class. You know, we've seen people starting to get priced out of the neighborhoods they've lived in for generations. 
But advocates also see hopeful signs coming from candidates willing to talk about making major changes to an often undemocratic political system, as well as about ambitious economic plans. So to give this dichotomy context, the gap between the richest and the poorest U.S. households is now the largest it's been in the past 50 years, despite the median U.S. income hitting a new record in 2018, according to new data from the census. So basically, we're making more money than we ever have, but the gap is the largest it's ever been. Yes, which is hard to sort of reconcile at times. And so U.S. income inequality was significantly higher in 2018 than in 2017, the Census Bureau says in its latest American Community Survey report. The last time a change in the metric was deemed statistically significant was when it grew from 2012 to 2013. While many states didn't see a change in income inequality last year because they can parse it by state, the income gap grew wider in nine states, Alabama, Arkansas, California, Kansas, Nebraska, New Hampshire, New Mexico, Texas, and Virginia. That's interesting. As we were just looking at those states, I'm like, how many of those states lean Republican and how many of those states lean Democratic? I just find that interesting to see if there's any trend there. But well, you also have like the two largest states in there, California and Texas. Yeah. That's interesting. But I guess this is where I get really pissed, in case you haven't noticed that I was a little fired up about this before. Because, you know, you and I, Misasha, we talk about our catchphrase being, we rise by lifting others. And it sounds like it really does not and has not applied to our economy. The disparity grew, right, despite a surging national economy. Right now, we've seen low unemployment and more than 10 years of consecutive GDP growth. But we're not lifting everybody up here. And so William Rogers, who's a professor of public policy and a chief economist at the Heldrich Center at Rutgers University, he said, the most troubling thing about the new report is that it, quote, clearly illustrates the inability of the current economic expansion, which is the longest on record, to lessen inequality. And when he was asked why the rising economic tide has raised some boats more than others, he listed several factors. He said there's the decline of organized labor, which is like unions, and competition for jobs from abroad. He also cited tax policies that favor businesses and higher income families. And that's always so frustrating personally, because I, you know, I feel that a large portion of our taxes and our taxes as part of our communities, and if we make more money, we should be paying more in a lot of ways. I mean, that's fundamentally what I personally believe. And it so frustrates me when we talk about all these tax cuts for the ultra rich, right? Because I, I feel like if we are going to lift others and we recognize that we all don't necessarily start out from that same base in our playing fields due to a whole host of different factors, then we should be doing that through taxes, through a whole host of other ways. But taxes is a real easy one there. It sure is. It's, you know, having lived abroad for a while, I am envious of the Hong Kong tax system, which if I'm remembering correctly, the number may have changed, but ballpark, it's a flat 15% tax. And so your taxes are not like, a month-long production to try to figure out all the things that you need to figure out and fill out and get on the computer and like fill out the form. I mean, it's not. It's like a three-page, I'm probably exaggerating a little bit the simplicity of it, but it's a very short form where if you have a flat tax, the wealthy pay more in absolute money because they have more to be taxed. And so I'm not saying that that's what I necessarily support, but there are different ways of structuring taxes that perfectly functional other capitalistic societies also have. And they don't have to be so complicated with so many loopholes and so many favors that are granted to people who make a lot of money. Yeah. No, it's... <clears throat> anyway, I don't know. It, it, I, I think it's worth reevaluating, that's for sure, I guess, is my point. Because obviously it's not working. 
And it, unless we make a change, there's going to be no end in sight. And we're going to live in a country where, you know, there's going to be a, a bunch of rich people. And then what happens in countries when you have a whole lot of people who can't get their needs met? Yeah. It doesn't work, right? It gets ugly. No, it gets very ugly, I think. So, you know, I also wanted to note that there were five states, California, Connecticut, Florida, Louisiana, New York, and the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico that had higher inequality rates than the rest of the U.S. in 2018. States that I'm all very familiar with. Of that group, California is the only state that saw its income gap grow even wider last year. So I think that that if you're thinking about the states where the income inequality is the highest, and it's interesting because they're sort of spread out throughout all of the four corners of our country and not necessarily where you would think income inequality is the highest. Those are the states along with D.C. and Puerto Rico. That is really interesting. Right. Yeah. Well, and we've talked about stories like, you know, the value of property, the value or, you know, how much food costs summer. Ca- like it really like my friends in New York, there's like, oh, my gosh, I think it was like private school or fifty thousand dollars a year to send your kids. And I'm like, who's paying for this? Like, I don't understand. Yep. That sounds like California. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. So you're familiar with this. So it's interesting that those gaps are still widening in some major, major states. And I think if Americans are better off than they were a decade ago, which appears to be the case, median household income is just shy of $62,000 a year for 2018, according to the Census Bureau. So even if they're well off or more better off than they were a decade ago, it doesn't always feel that way. The recovery from the Great Recession has been slow and uneven with lower income Americans, many of them Latino like Wilson or African American like the Detroit auto worker that we were talking about earlier. We experience fewer of the benefits. And so as a group, minority Americans are suffering from a staggering wealth gap with compared to white people that leaves them very little to fall back on. This Detroit auto worker Steve Jennings, he earns $13.75 an hour as a materials handler at Case Logistics, which is a company that prepares auto parts for assembly. And it's a job that leaves him sweating and sweating even in winter. And he's been there six years. He earns $3 per hour less than he did at a previous job, which he says he left after an injury there. And you think about his life. When Jennings goes to the doctor, he faces co-payments of $50 almost every visit, even though employees at his firm are represented by the United Auto Workers. So his quote, I mean, he drives a 97 Oldsmobile Aurora. He says, you're not paying me enough to be buying the cars that I'm making. Wow. Today, right, Jennings dashes out to buy work boots at a mall in nearby Highland Park, the city that birthed the modern assembly line, and whose median household income of less than $16,000 a year has declined over the last five years. At that mall, they've got discount stores, a CVS, a payday lender, and one of the original Model T factories that is now in disrepair. He says things were different for his parents. Even with his father's single income, we never went without anything, he says. And so I think it touches on a reality felt across the country. Economic mobility is on the decline, according to a Harvard team of researchers led by economist Raj Chetty. More than 90% of children who were born in 1940 grew up to earn more than their parents. Fast forward 40 years to people born around 1980, only 50% of children born from 1980 onwards will go on to earn more than their parents. But the top 1% is doing better than fine. The average CEO pulled in 312 times as much as the average worker in 2017, up from 20 times back in 1965, according to the Economic Policy Institute. I mean, you think about that for a second, and I just inserting the parental perspective, even if we make more than our parents did. Now, like fast forwarding that trend, the likelihood is that my kids are not going to make more than we're making. Are we helping our kids at all by 
giving them more stuff and treating them and spoiling them when they're out of my house in another decade or so, they're not going to be able to live this lifestyle. You know, what are we, when I think about parenting, I'm like, oh my gosh, what are we doing to these kids unless we really help rejigger this system? I don't know. But the rise in economic inequality is a global phenomenon, which we'll talk about in a moment. And that said, it's more extreme in the US because like we said, social mobility has shown to be lower than in other industrialized nation because the safety net is weaker and poverty is more severe. Even though the US spends more per capita on healthcare, the system covers fewer people and produces worse outcomes, including a lower life expectancy and higher infant mortality rates than a lot of other countries. And just as an asterisk to the healthcare thing that also pisses me off, people in Congress, I think, right, in, who are representing us in national politics, they don't abide by the same healthcare system that we do. They have a totally separate system. So who are they to make decisions on our public health system if they're not even part of it? I feel like that's really tough for them to really understand what people, their constituents are experiencing. And so on one hand, I want everyone, you know, it's a perk of their job. I don't begrudge them that. But they really have to work extra hard to understand what the rest of this country is going through because they don't live it. Well, especially if you've been a senator for, you know, like a million terms, basically, then, you know, you are so far removed from anything in our current healthcare system because the changes happen fast and quickly. Mm-hmm. And also, depending on what your background was growing up, I totally agree. The changes happen fast and quickly? Well, no, that you. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. (laughs) That too. I know. (laughs) (sighs) Okay, go take it. I'm sorry for the interruption. Okay, now I'm going to jump back into a totally dark statistic with that. Woohoo. No, we're always uplifting here. Yes, we are. Going back to the infant mortality rate issue, if the United States had experienced the same decline in infant deaths as have other Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development member states since 1960, 300,000 fewer babies would have died over the course of 50 years, according to a recent report. It's hard for me to even think about that number, what that means. Yeah. If anybody has listened to our recent episodes and reframing the women's healthcare debate as pro-choice or anti-choice, I think it is really critical that if we're all pro-life, then we need to be consistent and support healthcare and support, but like changing this trend of mortality rates, because that's a hell of a lot of lives that were lost. Yeah. I mean, also on, you know, life expectancy front, the U.S. has seen life expectancy drop during the past three years, the longest consecutive decrease since a period that included World War One and a concurrent flu pandemic. I mean, if you think about how far back you need to go, that's basically 100 years back. That sucks. I didn't realize that. Right. Yeah. So the grim combination of a rising suicide rate, especially in rural areas, and an epidemic of drug overdoses deserve the blame, say experts, but so may accelerating income economic inequality. At the same time, the gap between the life expectancy of the wealthy and everyone else has been widening, according to a 2016 study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. So that might also relate back to why the 1% is, you know, not concerned about healthcare. Their life expectancy is that gap between the 1%, the wealthy and everyone else is growing. 
they're not concerned about their life expectancy because that seems to be doing okay. Just fine. Wow. Yeah. So tackling economic inequality and its potential lethal effects will require a, quote, one-two punch, says Steph Sterling, vice president for advocacy and policy at the Roosevelt Institute, which is a liberal D.C.-based think tank. That requires putting a check on increasingly powerful corporations, the Amazons, the Exxons, the Walmarts, and expanding government's role where markets fail to provide for the public good. Interesting, right? Because we talked about if we're ruled by capitalism, that's not necessarily going to be for the public good. So it sounds like things are pretty extreme here in the United States. Do we look at income inequality in the same way as the rest of the world? And a recent New York Times article discusses just that, finding that American conservatives are global outliers in views about the fairness of income inequality, and they are among the most likely to attribute such inequality to merit which is what this ambitious global survey reveals. So they're basically saying, well, we deserve it, or they didn't deserve it. And yet when it comes to actual behavior, which was basically this study they did, whether to redistribute money to workers in an experimental setting, American conservatives act a lot like everyone else. So I guess the takeaway is that policy preferences are not based on you know, this core philosophical differences so much that as much as what really is, is the stories that parties tell themselves about why people are rich and poor to begin with, which is I deserve it. I worked harder. I can. Yeah, the study was fascinating because in 2018, four economists at the Center for Experimental Research on Fairness, Inequality, and Rationality. It sounds like an amazing center. P.S. I totally was like, wait, I want to go there. I want to learn from them. <laughs> at the Norwegian School of Economics conducted a huge experiment, mostly via face-to-face -face interviews using the Gallup World Poll. The Norwegian team, which was, again, made up of four people whose names I'm totally going to butcher, so I'm not going to say them. I was wondering if you were going to say them. Nope. Worked with Gallup to survey 65,000 people across 60 countries about their beliefs related to the gaps between the rich and the poor. That's a lot of people and a lot of countries. Mostly via face-to-face -face interviews, which is amazing, right? So part of the survey was an experiment. Respondents were randomly assigned to different conditions and presented a real-life scenario. Two people were recently hired to independently complete a short assignment. They were both paid, but one was given an additional $6. In the first group, survey takers were told that the additional $6 was given out randomly. In the second group, they were told that the $6 went to the worker who was more productive in completing the assignment. In both cases, respondents were asked how they would divide the additional earnings, whether they would transfer none of it, some of it, or all of it to the other worker. To identify the political orientation of the respondents, the New York Times used their response to whether they approved of their country's leader. So American residents were asked about President Trump, while respondents from you know a whole host of other countries were asked about their heads of state or country. Globally, a strong majority of people, 69%, say differences between rich and poor in their country are unfair. Even more, 79% say that the national government should aim to reduce those differences. American liberals defined, you know, according to this study and that sort of binary question that they asked as those who do not approve of Mr. Trump are similar to the global average. 75% say inequality is unfair with a margin of error of 3.5 percentage points. 77% say that the government should reduce inequality. American conservatives, however, stand out. Only 26% of Americans who approve of Mr. Trump say income differences between rich and poor are unfair. That's lower than the country average for all 60 nations. Only Japanese supporters, uh, their prime minister, watching your face. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Our nation, you and me, we're just... <laughs> 
in trouble as half Japanese, half white people. American. <laughs> I was just waiting for your reaction. Okay, so only Japanese supporters of Prime Minister Abe hold similar views. 23% say inequality is unfair. By contrast, most supporters of government, conservative governments in other countries such as Israel, India, and Britain say inequality is unfair. Strikingly, 26% of U.S. conservatives agree that the national government should aim to reduce inequality. That's far lower than the share of supporters or detractors of national leaders across the 51 countries where approval was asked. And it is far lower than the national average for the nine additional countries where leader approval was not asked, probably because there is no dominant leader. And I have to, I can't get over the Japan thing. But I think one of the things I want to interject there that I find interesting is that in this country, there is a huge economic disparity. In Japan, I don't actually know what the stats are, but to my understanding, for the most part, you have safety nets in place like healthcare and retirement and all this sort of stuff. So I find it interesting that people coming from totally different socioeconomic structured countries have that similar view. And I don't know what that says or if that makes any difference in how we interpret those results, because I don't think there is as much income inequality or economic inequality in Japan as there is here. Well, this next part may help provide some insight into why that percentage came up the way it did. Okay. And then before you go there, okay. when you were given that experiment, if you were to be sitting there saying six bucks was random versus six bucks because you were the most productive person, I just like, you don't have to answer it necessarily out loud, but how would you feel about that personally? Right? Because I was like, oh shit, I think I know what my response would be too. You can take it in your head. <laughs> <laughs> no, in all seriousness, I can see the difference in my gut feel. And I think I would be like, well, but I earned this. Whereas if it was random, I'd be like, oh, of course we can share it. But if it was given to me because I thought that I was better at it, I would be like, that's mine. And I think I'd be like, that feels yucky that that would make a difference. But the attitude really for me personally, like the knowledge of why I would be given money, it feels different to me. And I don't like to admit that, but I think that's my truth. I got to think about that. That is my same gut feeling. Although I think that the caveat there would be if I knew something about the other person, like I don't think you did in this survey, right? You're one worker, other person's another worker, like about their circumstances where splitting that money would make sense. Even if I was more productive, I think I might do that. However, but in a vacuum, my initial reaction is, oh, it's like a reward for being more productive. Oh, wait, can I go back to something I say all the freaking time, which is that relationships matter, and we need to be able to communicate with one another, because I think that what you just said, yeah, I think is spot on. If I even had any rapport with the other human being, and they weren't just a nameless vacuum entity, and they were a human being, yeah, you're right, that would actually change my emotional yeah. response to that question. Yeah, fascinating. All right, thank you for playing with me on that game there. <sighs> Okay, so back to the survey. Beliefs about the fairness of inequality in the government's role are related to the explanations people give for income differences. The survey asked about four reasons for inequality that, that could be interpreted to imply that the rich deserve higher income. They work harder. They have greater ability. They are more likely to delay gratification. They are more likely to take risks. It also asked about four reasons that suggest wealth may be unrelated to ability, luck, selfishness, illegal activity, or family opportunities. American conservatives are more likely than any other major political group in the world to agree with explanations for inequality suggesting the rich deserve to be richer. Hold on. Let's just sit with that for a second. Than the world? 
more likely than any other major political group in the world to agree with explanations for inequality suggesting the rich deserve to be richer. And they are unlikely to agree with statements suggesting that the rich are richer for reasons unrelated to merit. Supporters of Rwanda's president, Paul Kagame, were the only group whose explanations for inequality favored the rich as much as did those of American Trump supporters, which, on a side note, is kind of amazing because we just had friends over for dinner, who one of whom is from Nigeria and the other one, her family is from Nigeria, who are very familiar with the Rwanda of today, like post-Hotel Rwanda, post-Civil War Rwanda, New Rwanda, and talked about the amazing nature of this country post-Civil War, but that there is such a strong police state there that fairness is basically enforced very visibly at every street corner. So the concept of inequality there is probably very different and very controlled in a way that doesn't exist anywhere else except apparently for American conservatives. So yet the story changes, though, when we move to the experimental results, that experiment that we were just discussing, that look at actual behaviors. Despite the wide gaps in beliefs with the rest of the world, American conservatives were just as likely as the average person in the world to redistribute the bonus income equally to each worker when told the bonus was based on random chance. The majority, 53% of Trump supporters, redistributed the money equally, compared with 51% of people around the world and 63% of American liberals, which I thought was very interesting. That is interesting. So when push comes to shove, that whole random chance thing, sure. Right. If you believe it was chance alone then, yeah, a fundamental sense of fairness kicks in. American conservatives might assume liberals are adverse to merit-based compensation. The experiment proves that's not so. When told the bonus payment was made only to the most productive worker, only 13% of the liberals transferred all of the money equally to the less productive worker, which is within the margin of error of the American conservative response, 10%. Fascinating, because that is a pushback that people give all the time to liberal. Oh, you you just want a socialism. Like, it's the words that are being spat out. But really, when push comes to shove, same human response. So, I, okay, that's interesting. So Americans, both liberal and conservative, were more likely than most people worldwide to accept merit-based income differences. As one of the study's investigators, Mr. Tungaden, mentioned in his public presentation on the study, people in richer countries were more likely than people in poorer countries to allow merit-based differences. In the rich and more egalitarian country of Norway, 88% of respondents transferred the bonus payment equally when told it was allocated by chance, but only 33% did so when allocated by merit. Compared to the 10% to 13% in our country. That's interesting. Okay. Further illustrating the divide between beliefs and actions, American conservatives were just as likely as the average person around the world and as American liberals to say that within the last month they had donated to a charity, helped a stranger, or volunteered their time to an organization. Such actions, insofar as they alleviate poverty, would seem to contradict the idea that the poor deserve to be poor and that inequality is fair. So once you take away all of that ideological stuff and look at specific cases, the differences between political parties seem superficial in at least one area. Conservatives will redistribute riches acquired at random and liberals will reward good performance, which I think is key, like that we have this area, regardless of political party, where we have this commonality, especially when it comes to looking at income and income inequality. Yeah, that's really, really interesting. 
right? So the many implications of this research will be explored in further future publications from this team, which I can't wait to see. But one interesting extension will be to examine whether and how the gender or ethnicity of workers affects a respondent's willingness to pay or redistribute. For now, liberals who want more redistribution may want to consider persuading conservatives that at least some of the money earned by the rich is not based on productive contributions. Conservatives, on the other hand, who want lower taxes or who want to avoid this wealth tax may consider emphasizing the productive contributions of rich people. That was from the New York Times article, and it was more about trying to find a common ground, right, in our beliefs. I love that. I really love that. So conservatives should really be focusing on engaging in the conversation about how rich people are productive, not just random, like, oh, they'll make more jobs, but there are benefits to the people who are rich. And then for people who want to persuade conservatives, they just need to be like, some of it comes from family, some of it like is just by chance or luck or that sort of thing. Okay. (sighs) Wow. I mean, one thing is clear. How rich people earn their money is widely regarded as important when people consider the fairness of income distribution. And successful entrepreneurs often create value for a large number of customers and generate good jobs for their employees. But that said, so many of that 1%, the top income earners in America, benefit from distorted markets. They're not entrepreneurs. They do not invent new products or services. And their success has coincided with very meager wage growth for the middle class. So if you can get opportunities to get rich, right, and align with those that generate broader social value, that really truly do offer jobs and take care of their people. That seems like that would be a great goal for everyone. But realistically, it's hard to do. And yet we're not without hope. Change is possible. Not everyone around us is pessimistic. There is a person named Amy Allison, who is the founder of She the People, which is a national network of women of color, which sponsored the first town hall for the Democratic presidential candidates. But she said a lot could come of this moment. She is among those who say that Trump's presidency and the anguish that it has caused immigrants, women and others has made space for a more far reaching progressive policy agenda. She says it's in this environment where ideas of economic change that were looked at as crazy just two years ago are now a part of regular conversation. And as of this recording, I mean, we still have certain Democratic candidates like Sanders and Warren who have built a lot of their platforms around progressive change like that. Yeah, and it's important to keep in mind that regardless of whether major progressive reforms can be won in the next few years or, you know, even in this next election, there is no downside to discussing proposals that are ambitious enough to address the challenge at hand. And that's the opinion of Eric Loomis, who is a University of Rhode Island historian. He cautions against voters investing too much faith in what one president can do on his or her own. So clearly, you know, what we're left with is now a trajectory that we need to change, the one that we've been on since the 1970s. And all candidates, Donald Trump included, are discussing some level of reforms. However, it's what's important for you, the listener, to understand is that when you're going to the polls, whether it's, you know, your Super Tuesday primary, your caucus or your general election vote this November, keep in mind that each vote can help to change that trajectory. So please vote. If you like what you've heard or you like what you're hearing, please take a second to rate and review us on whatever podcast platform you use. It would mean a lot. That helps us spread the word about our podcast. Or if you're into direct sharing, tell a friend or five about us. And if you want any more information, go to our website at dearwhitewomen.com. We've got all the past episodes, email signups, and all our social media links from there so you can stay connected and get all the bonus material that we offer. 